one on the table. And we hope that you'll turn there. Psalms is located right in the middle of your Bible, which is a very interesting position for them. And as a result, I think many people, when they open their Bible, they open up to the middle, they open up the Psalms, and they read Psalms. Psalms are probably some of the uh, passages that people read most in their Bible. So we're in Psalm 94 this week. I believe we'll go through 99 for the summer. And then we'll pick up next year on Psalm 100. And I actually think, Gary, that I said that in 2003, not 2013. That's what I guess. Because we've gotten through, we'll get through about 100 Psalms, and that's been about seven years. So we're seven. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, um, tomorrow I begin teaching at the college uh, for a new semester. Can you believe that? That you would start in the middle of August teaching college? Where when I lived in Maryland, colleges started at the end of September. So anyway, I'm actually thinking that this might be my last year teaching at the college. Yeah, you know what I've been thinking lately. I just want to throw this out, and this is something you guys can pray pray about. Uh, this morning, you saw when the pastor. This is about the second or third time the pastor's done this. When the pastor uh, gave a big invitation for people to come up and have their needs prayed for. Every time he's done that, what's happened? Altar's been filled. And God has just been placing on my heart for about a year now, maybe a little more than that, that I need to spend a lot of time, or that I should start some sort of prayer ministry because, you know, people need prayer. they got a lot of needs. And I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, but I'm thinking of a couple options. One is just to set aside one night a week in some location. Could be a church building, could be anywhere. And people know I'll be there, and be willing to pray for them. Or other is just to say, every night at 9 o'clock, I'm going to pray. I'm going to devote so much time to prayer for people's needs, and they can just call me or email me, and they'll know that every, every night, as long as they need, I'll be praying for them. So I'm just thinking about something in the area of prayer. I'm not a great prayer, prayer warrior, and I want you to know that. And a lot of times my prayers aren't answered, and you know that. So, But I'm thinking about doing something like that. I'm just trying to figure the timing on all of this. So that's something that you might want to pray about. So anyway, we're in Psalm 94. So let's talk a little bit about that. We are in the midst of what are called enthronement psalms from Psalm 90. 3 to 99, each one of these psalms deals with uh, God as king, that he reigns over the universe. But Psalm 94 is different. It doesn't fit into that pattern, and therefore, many Bible teachers call this an orphan psalm. Uh, it, it doesn't have a superscription over the psalm. That's one thing you'll notice. Now, the publisher may have put a title there, but it doesn't have the official superscription over the song. So therefore, uh, we do not know who wrote it. That's one thing we don't know. And we don't know the circumstances of the song. And it doesn't seem to fit in with the other enthronement song. It seems to be about God being a judge. But I think the, uh, the title or the classification of this psalm being an orphan psalm is probably a misnomer. Because although the word king is not used in this psalm, uh, 
it seems to me that it's still speaking about God being a king. A king who, the king of the universe who one day is going to have to have to settle accounts. He's going to have to judge the affairs that take place on the earth. And in the context of the psalm, and I think when you read this, you'll see this, that the writer is a faithful servant of God, possibly a prophet. And that's what I think as I read over the psalm over and over again, that the psalmist is a prophet. And that the enemies of God who are going to be judged, according to this psalm, are the evil kings of Judah, such as Jehoiachin, and you know, all those hymns and chins and kinds of kings, those kinds of kings. Uh, Jeroboam and so on and so forth. Uh, kings who uh, brought a curse on the nation of Judah and led to the Babylonian captivity that started in 586 BC. Okay, so with that understanding, we're going to look at this psalm, and I think it'll open up. And uh, the first thing you're going to see in Psalm 94 is that the psalmist uh, makes a request of God. Okay? And he opens with prayer. Look at verse 1. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Now this is a request or a prayer, and the key verb is shine forth. That's what he wants God to do. Shine forth. Which means to, to manifest himself. To make his presence known so there could be no mistake that what's happening is God. And what he wants God to do is he wants God to judge. Notice how he describes God. How he addresses God. He says, O Lord God. And you'll notice in your Bible the word Lord is in all caps. And from the past you know what that means. What does it mean? That means that God, this is the God who made a covenant with Israel. And uh, in the Hebrew, his name is Jehovah or Yahweh, but in our English translation, so you know that's the God, that he's Yahweh, they translate it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the God who made an agreement with Israel, and he said, if you follow the rules of the agreement, you will be blessed. If you break the rules of the agreement, you will be cursed. He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. Notice how the psalmist characterizes God in verse 1. He's the God of vengeance. You see that? O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. And then the second line in verse 1. O God, to whom vengeance belongs. Shine forth. Make yourself known. In a vengeful way. Now, vengeance is different than revenge. Somebody does something to me, I'm going to get even with them. In fact, I'm going to do more than get even with them, aren't I? I'm going to make sure they never do that again. It's not going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's going to be two eyes for an eye, two teeth for a tooth. That's revenge. In fact, when Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for you know, and all that. But Jesus says, I say unto you, and he tells us to love our enemies and things like that. He wants to make sure that we're not vengeful or, or revengeful. And vengeance is, is an act of God. So that's different than revenge. Revenge is a human response. Vengeance is the response of God toward evil. And it is based on punishing people justly. Giving them what they deserve, no more and no less. 
And so he's going to ask God to, to judge the wicked people. Notice he is called the judge of earth. See? So it's going to be an earthly judgment that he's talking about. You're going to see that in verse 2. So now look what he says in verse 2. Still part of his prayer. Rise up, O judge of earth. Render punishment to the proud. So the first verb, shine forth. The second verb, rise up. Get off your throne. Get off your chair and do something. What does he want him to do? Render what? Punishment. Render punishment. Notice who he is the who are the objects of this punishment. They are, at the end of verse 2, the proud or the arrogant. See? Those who act as if the center of the universe is on them. That, you know, they sing, you know, how great I am rather than how great thou art type thing. So these are the proud, these are the arrogant, these are people who have power. And then he asks a question about judgment. And it deals with timing. Look at verse 3. Lord, and notice it's again capital L-O-R-D, the one who has established the covenant with Israel. The word Lord, by the way, is used ten times in the psalm. Okay? So he's addressing this covenant God, and he says, Lord, how long will the wicked... Now you, that's not a sentence, is it? How long will it? So he, it's like he hesitates. He says, how long will the wicked... He sort of goes, how long will the wicked... And then the second line, he says, how long will the wicked... What? Triumph. See? How long will they prevail? How long will their bragging go on? How long will their arrogance prevail? Uh, how long will they continue to reach this exalted position of power and get away with the evil things that they are doing? So he's asking God, to how long is he going to have to wait before he sees justice? And that's a question we all ask. And it's a very important question. He knows that God's going to judge sooner or later. The psalmist would rather it be sooner than later. He doesn't know how long. But he says, Lord, how long? That's the question that he asks. Okay? And then he tells why they should be judged. And he gives us a list of things that need to be rectified. And you see that in verse 4. Look what he says. They, that's the wicked people of verse 3, the proud of verse 2. He says, they utter speech. They speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. So what he says is that they are proud, they are arrogant. And he just says, just listen to what they say and you'll, you'll know what needs to be judged. Uh, notice he calls them workers of iniquity. They do bad things and then they boast about it. They got away with it. Uh, he goes on to say, verse 5, They break in pieces your people, O Lord. Uh, they persecute God's people. Uh, this is one of the things they do. They demean God's people. Uh, he says they break in pieces. They grind them into the ground under their foot. They hold them down. They oppress them. They harass God's people. Uh, you can break people physically. You can break people psychologically, you know, emotionally. And that's what these arrogant people do and they brag about it. They break into pieces your people. Notice the word your. He's still speaking to God. This is still part of the prayer. 
and he's speaking to God about the situation that needs to be dealt with. And they afflict your heritage. Notice that. They don't only, it seems to indicate that it may be even more than psychological. It could be a physical thing that they do to the situation. In fact, he now goes on even further. In verse 6 he says, They slay the widow and the stranger, and they murder the fatherless. They eliminate people. Now, I believe these are the wicked kings that are doing this. And what they're doing is they are attacking, stoning, starving to death uh, from, you know, just emotional all the way to killing them. And who are they doing it to? The most vulnerable of society. Notice, number one, in verse six, they slay women without husbands. Widows, the most vulnerable who have no one to protect them. They take advantage of them. Number two, look at this. Strangers, immigrants. Don't take care of the immigrants in their society. And then finally, they take care of the fatherless. Those who are orphans. All these are people who are disenfranchised. These are people who have no power. And those in power take advantage of them, they punish them, they starve them. Um, why do they do it? Why would a person do that to somebody who can't help themselves? Because they can't. That's why they do it. These people aren't on the radar. They don't care about these people. All they care about is their friends. They care about those that are you know, in their circles. So I believe this is an important word for us. Uh, how do we treat the disenfranchised? How does the church treat these kinds of people? And this is just a classification. There are a lot more people that are marginalized. Uh, and these people that are arrogant don't even notice these people. And while these people are starving, the arrogant are getting richer and more powerful. And then look what they say about it all. Verse 7. They say, the Lord doesn't see nor does the God of Jacob understand. They do these things uh, believing that God's indifferent to them. Uh, that God's blind to their behavior. Uh, it's sort of a practical atheism here. Uh, these are Jewish people, these kings, who are treating God's people who are marginalized in a way that demeans them, crushes them, grinds them underfoot, starves them, and they have no recourse these people have no recourse, and they say, and God doesn't even care. So they act like there's no God. They, they'll you know, tip their hat to God, but they act like God doesn't care. Now they know from the covenant that God does care. He said, if you do this, this is going to be the result. So they're more like deists. They believe there's a God up there, but he's not really concerned in day-to-day -day affairs. So all of this is the situation and the request that the psalmist makes. Now the psalmist turns his attention directly toward the wicked. He switches his attention and he rebukes them. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, first of all, understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you wise up? That's a rebuke. It's a taunt and it's a rebuke. First of all, he says, Consider something. 
Understand something. Consider something. You senseless among the people. Uh, they're like animals. They don't have sense. They don't have a conscience. They don't, they don't have, they don't reflect on moral situations. That's what a senseless person is. And then he calls them fools, which of course are people who act like there's no God. Notice what he says about these. He says, you senseless, in verse 8, notice this, among the people. This is why I believe these enemies are Jews. They're not the leaders of other nations. These are leaders and, that are among God's people. And, uh, but they're not treating God's people the way they should. He says, when are you going to wise up? That's a good way of putting it. Since he says, you fools, when will you be wise? When are you going to wise up? When are you going to consider the, the consequences of what you're doing? When are you going to fall in line with God's, God's law? So he asked them a question. And he says, he shows another one of the things. In verse 7 it says, and they say, and here's another thing they say. Look in verse, uh, verse 9. Uh, the psalmist says, He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? Evidently they say, God doesn't know what we're doing. And he says, wait a second. Uh, if God created your eye, don't you think he can see? He doesn't hear what we're saying, these insolent things that we're saying, these plans that we make. He doesn't hear that. Wait a second. Doesn't the God who created your ear have the ability to hear? You know, wake up. Wise up. Are you stupid or something? That's what he's saying. God knows everything that's going on. And then he says this to those people. He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, meaning, shall he not correct? Yes, God will judge the nations and he's going to judge his people. Uh, he's going to put things right. The answer to each one of those questions is yes, yes. The God who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? Oh yes, he's going to correct things. He's going to put the nations right where they belong. He who teaches man knowledge, is he going to correct things? And the answer is, oh yes, he's going to correct things. So then he concludes this, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He not only sees, he not only hears, he knows the secret plans. He knows the schemes that are going on in your mind. He knows the motivation for the things that you do and why you do them in verse 11. The Lord, Yahweh, knows the thoughts of man. And guess what? He knows that they are God. Every plan that you have is a vain plan. It's an empty plan. It's going to end up with your destruction, with your punishment. It's all going to be, in the long run, for nothing. So often we, uh, we come up with these plans and schemes, but in the long run, it means nothing. In the long run, the important thing is how we relate to God and his people. So he's now spoken to the wicked people directly. Now he turns his attention again to God in verse 12, and he says this. So we know the wicked are going to be punished. Now watch verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. So now, what he's talking about 
is God's people. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, and the implication is, and who in return obeys. And blessed is the one whom you teach out of your law, verse 12, and by implication, and obeys. This is a beatitude. You're familiar with the beatitudes? Blessed is the man that, you know, this is, this is a beatitude right here. This is the person that God blesses. The one who takes his instruction, takes his law, and is obedient to the covenant. The one that God curses is the one who hears his instruction and breaks the covenant. In the end, that person is going to be punished. So they are God's people in name only, not in reality. And then he gives us the purpose of the law. Watch this. Let's reread 12 and 13 together now, just for a second. Blessed is the man whom you instruct and teach out of your law, that you may, here's why God instructs us, and here's why God teaches us out of his law. That, that's a purpose statement. He does that, that, or so that, in order that you, God, may give him rest from the days of adversity. In other words, for those who obey God, there is going to come a time of rest. Uh, we don't know when that's going to come. We could rest even in the middle of adversity if we have a close connection with God. But he says this, watch this, very interesting. That you, verse 13, you may give him rest from the days of adversity for how long? Until the pit is dug for the wicked. I want you to know something. A pit is being dug for the wicked right now. And they may be oppressing you, they may be hurting you, they may be talking against you, but guess what? A pit is being dug for them, and they're going to fall into that pit. In the meantime, it looks like God is giving us rest because we rest in Him and in His law in the midst of the adversity. So that's uh, very interesting. He says, and there's a certainty there, isn't there, in verse 13? Until the pit is dug for the wicked. It's going to be dug. You're certain that they're going to be judged and you're going to you know, be justified. <coughs> and he gives an explanation in verse 14. Because, for the Lord will not cast off his people... If you are an obedient, covenant-keeping person, the Lord's not going to cast off His people, nor will He, look at this, forsake His inheritance. God's not going to cast off His covenant people, in verse 14. He's not going to forsake His covenant-keeping people, and that's a guarantee. You have guaranteed that God will never forsake you. And when Jesus died on the cross, what did He say? My God, my God, why or what? Had God forsaken him? Not really. You say, well, how, why? Was Jesus wrong? Well, what happened when Jesus was on the cross? What was happening to Jesus? All of our what? Sins were placed upon Jesus, and Jesus became sin, and in that condition, guess what he felt like? He was forsaken. Did God, did God forsake him? Now, three days later, what did God do? <laughs> Raised him from the dead. So, here is a guarantee. And then what does Jesus say to us, by the way, in the Great Commission? He tells us, he says, Well, I am with you always, didn't he? Yeah. And he's not going to forsake us. 
So uh, here we have this guarantee that God's not going to forsake us, but we also have a guarantee that he's digging the pit for the wicked. The wicked indeed are going to be judged. Look at verse 15. But, see, here's the contrast. But judgment will return to the righteous. And this means justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. So uh, we know God's right way, and if we follow it, we are going to be justified, and the others are going to be just. In the meantime, he laments, which is very interesting to me. Because look what he says, verse 16. He asks a ponder a question that he ponders. It's sort of a pondering question. He says this: Who will rise up against? Who will rise up for me against the evil doers? Who will stand for me against the workers of iniquity? Now here's this is a lament. He says, "All this is going on, and guess what? I'm asking a question." Will anybody help me? Can I find somebody who will stand with me against the wicked? And the answer is what? Nobody's helping this guy. And that's why he's lamenting. But it's interesting that the, the way he words this is the word, is the word, verse 16, will anyone rise up? And what did he ask God to do in verse 2? Rise up. He said, I've been asking people to stand with me against this unrighteous, and I can't find anybody. No one is. But he knows somebody will. Who is it? God's going to rise up. Rise up so that's what you have happening here. So I, I think that this psalm could have even been written by a prophet like Jeremiah, who was an eyewitness to the downfall of the kings and all their shenanigans, and finally how Israel went into, the Judah went into Babylonian captivity. Uh, but no one stands with it. He's hunting for somebody to stand with him. And no one stands with him. And that's a, a sad situation that he's in. Look at verse 17. Unless the Lord had been my help. Watch this. Look at this in the past. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have settled in silence. That means I'd have been a dead duck if the Lord hadn't delivered me and stood with me. I couldn't find a human to stand with me, but the Lord did stand with me in that situation. Look what he says in verse 17. Uh, that's what it is. In verse 17. Unless the Lord had stood with me, I would, I would have uh, settled in silence. Now in verse 18 is a prayer. If I say, my Lord, my foot slips. If I say, my foot slips. If I cry out, my foot's slipping. Look what he says in verse 18. Your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. See, that's a confession of faith right there. If I say help, I know something. Your mercy will hold me up. Now there's that mercy word. That's a covenant word, isn't it? It means loving kindness. It means compassion. If I'm in need, all I have to do is say, I'm slipping. Here's Peter walking on the water. Oh, there I go. He just holds him up. And this psalmist, knows that even though everybody else has abandoned him and forsaken him, God hasn't. And when he's slipping, all God has to do, God will hold him up. Because God will keep his covenant and show compassion and mercy upon the psalmist. Because the psalmist obeys the law. The psalmist keeps the covenant. And then verse 19. 
In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. In the multitude of the anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Now notice this guy's got a lot of anxieties. Things are not going good for this guy. He's anxious. He's worried. He said, well, should he be worried? Well, I don't know whether he should be worried or not, but guess what? He is worried. <laughs> He's just saying, look, a lot of bad things are going on around me, and it really gripes me when I see this happening. But I know. But another thing he says is that in verse 19, your comforts, which would be your promises, your covenant promises, cause my soul to just jump up and down and shout hallelujah. So you can be blessed even in the midst of the worst circumstances in life. You don't have to allow your anxieties to get the best of you and go into a funk and go into a depression. You look at the situation, you cry, oh God help, and you know that he's going to come and help, and that should bring great joy to your life. So right now, I feel like jumping up and down. Because if you're in a situation like that, we will just start jumping right now. Because we have God's promises that everything's going to be okay. Maybe not when we want them to be okay. But in God's time. Verse 20. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? And the answer is no. This shows me that the workers of iniquity are sitting on the throne. you see that? Shall the throne of iniquity, that's the kings, that's the evil kings, Watch what they do. They devise evil by the law. <laughs> they use the law for their own purposes to do evil things. Does that sound familiar? Yes. So like almost all the politicians that you know. Look, they use the law for their own evil purposes. Look. Shall those people have fellowship with you? And the answer is no. They don't have any relationship with God. So I believe that the psalmist is speaking of a king, in fact, a series of kings who ruled in jo Judah uh, during the time of his being a prophet. And they used the law to devise and justify their actions against God's people, and especially against the disenfranchised. Sounds a lot like the Pharisees in Jesus said. Remember how they could quote the law and they used it for their own purposes? They used it for evil purposes. They used the law to, you know, crucify Jesus. And then verse 21 says, they gather together. Notice there's more of them. So he's just talking about how they're all of the same mindset. Uh, they gather together against the life of the righteous. Uh, against the life of the righteous means they will put you out of the way if they can. If you get in the way of their plans. They condemn innocent blood. Succession of kings. But, look at this. But, the Lord has been my defense. And my God, the rock of my refuge. God has been my fortress. God has protected me from these people because they would have killed me in a moment if they could have. But somehow God put a hedge of protection around this particular prophet. The Lord has been my defense. And then look at verse 23. 
He has brought on them, that's the wicked people, their own iniquity. He has brought on them in the past and in the present their own iniquity. They're paying for their sin. Just, they're just, just, uh, just from in natural ways you pay for your own sin, you know. Uh, but God's protected the prophet, and He's brought the iniquity on these evil men. And look in the middle, verse twenty-three. And shall that's in the future cut them off from their own <coughs> wickedness. Uh, cut them off means kill them. <laughs> the word to cut off means die. <laughs> okay. So God will eventually separate them from their own wickedness by putting them to death. Their iniquity will not go on forever. I want you to know that no matter who the bad dictator ruler is, it doesn't matter whether it's in Iran or Iraq or whatever, guess what they're going to do? They're going to die. <laughs> and that point their iniquity ends as far as for what they can do. And he says God is going to bring that on. He's going to cut them off. That's in the future, notice. In their own iniquity. That means they're going to die in their sin. He will cut them off. He will kill them in their own iniquity. They will die in their sins. There's no salvation for them. No redemption, no forgiveness. And then finally he says, at the end of verse 23, the Lord our God shall cut them off. That's the guarantee. Their careers will be cut short. They'll come to an end. And they will be judged. I remember a quote from Daniel Webster. He was asked, what was, what was the, the sublimest thought that he ever had, the most profound thought that he ever had? And his answer was a one-word response, judgment. And at first, that doesn't sound like a sublime thought, but it really is. It's probably the most sublime and profound thought that you can have, judgment. It means that one day, the accounts will be settled. Without a reckoning day, Hitler gets away with murder. Can you imagine that? So what would be the, the greatest thought is that, hey, guess what? One day there's going to be judgment, the accounts are going to be settled, there's going to be a reckoning day. And Jesus says that judgment is going to be based on something. Here, notice what they do. They kill the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners in the midst. Jesus says, one day we're going to all stand before God and he's going to say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. No. And you say, well, Lord, he says, the people say, Lord, we never saw you that way. He said, well, if you haven't done that to the least of these, then you haven't done it to me. Depart from me, watch this phrase, you workers of iniquity, be banished from the presence of God. So, it's not our profession of faith alone that saves us. It's not walking forward that saves us. It's not getting baptized that saves us. What saves us is saving faith. Not just professing faith. Saving faith which produces fruit. 
Where there's no fruit, there's no root. So what we're talking about is we need saving faith, and saving faith is a faith that produces fruit. And that fruit is how do you respond to the least of these brethren, the least among us. So it's very interesting that the very last phrase of verse 23 is a response to verse 1 of Psalm 94. So at the end of verse 23 says, The Lord our God shall cut them off. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 94. O Lord our God. See the same wording. Lord our God. O Lord God, of whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs. Shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. And then at the end of verse 23 it says, The Lord our God shall cut them off. So that, in the sense, is the guarantee that the prayer that he asks indeed will be answered. And it's important, I believe, that each one of us live by faith that shows forth fruit in the present in light of the fact that there's a future judgment. And you can say, well, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? And he's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So the profession of faith is not enough. The question in the Old Testament was, did you keep the covenant? If you did, you didn't earn your salvation. But if you kept the covenant, it was evidence that you had salvation. And in the New Testament, the question is, how do you treat the people around you? How you treat the people around you doesn't earn you your salvation, but it's evidence whether you're saved or not. <laughs> and so that's Psalm 94. Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 95. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a convicting word. It shows us the importance of, as a people, as a church, as a class, as a single individual, we need to reach out to the hurting those who can't help themselves and show them the same covenant love and kindness and compassion that you show us. May we now be your hands extended reaching out and being a witness to the world in Christ's name. Amen.